we're gonna kick off our annual fall vision series today. And we take time every fall just to seek God's heart for our church and cast vision for the future. So today we're gonna start in Hosea chapter 10. So maybe you've never read Hosea. It's probably the majority of us. It's after the book of Daniel and just before the book of Joel. It's a bit of an obscure Old Testament book, and it's the first of the 12 minor prophet books. If you didn't know, the kingdom of Israel, so you know that Jesus was an Israelite, right? He was a Jew. And the kingdom of Israel, which is really the story we read about in the Old Testament, it split into two kingdoms in about 930 BC. And then there was the northern kingdom of Israel, who kept the name Israel. That was 10 tribes of Israel. And then the other two tribes were the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hosea speaks to the northern kingdom specifically about 200 years after they split. And the northern kingdom at this point is on the brink of destruction. God is about to judge them uh, through the foreign superpower, Assyria, and exile them from their land. And Hosea decries their sin. He, he decries their rebellion against God. And he calls them, it's like one last ditch effort, he calls them to repent and to turn back to God. As I've sought God's heart for our church over the last several months, as I've been thinking about this series for quite some time, I just keep hearing Hosea 10, 12 through 13 ringing in my mind. It's only two verses, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is all over it for the current moment our culture is in and for our church. So it says this in verse 12 of Hosea 10. It says, sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And you have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, and you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. All right, the sermon title this morning is Preparing for the Next Move of God. Preparing for the Next Move of God, the longest title I've ever had in Jesus' name. Let's pray. All right, Lord, I thank you so much for this morning and for every heart that's here on this cloudy day. And God, I pray that just as uh, there's been clouds outside for what seems like the first time in a long time, that there would be a cloud of, of Holy Spirit rain that's kind of swelling up over our church. And in spirit, we ask you to rain on our church. God, we ask you to have your way. God, we pray that you would be the main event at Scent Church, that the Spirit of God would be so present here. So Holy Spirit, we invite you, and God, we ask you to have your way. We pray that this would not be just a speech or some lofty ideas I have, but that this would be a demonstration of your Spirit's power. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, so it, it was a cold, wet night in 1949 in the village of Barvis on the Scottish island of Lewis, which is a part of the Outer Hebridean Islands. I want to show a map of this. So that's the island of Lewis. You see it, part of the United Kingdom there. And the Hebrides are an isolated group of rocky islands that are almost treeless as they are just constantly bombarded by the North Atlantic winds. And on this particular night, two sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith, who were 84 and 82 at the time, were praying for their church. And Peggy was completely blind and Christine was bent over with arthritis. Let's show a picture of, of Peggy and Christine there with the preacher Duncan Campbell in between them. At this time, the churches on the island were all but dead. And they had a form of godliness. You know, Paul talks about having a form of godliness. They had a form of godliness, but it was legalistic. It was lifeless. You know, people would maybe pray and read their Bibles because that's what you're supposed to do, but it wasn't a delight of their hearts. It was an obligation. You know, students were taught the Bible in schools, but, but uh, for many of the teachers that were teaching the Bible in schools, they weren't converted themselves. And this led the young people of the island to, or to want nothing to do with church. They thought there was nothing compelling about the church. It was just lifeless and dead. And at the Smith Sisters Church specifically, not a single young person attended church there. And this provoked their spirits. They said, not on our watches. And they were praying Isaiah 44.3, over their church and their island. They were praying for, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Okay, so they believed that, that God was going to pour out water on their spiritually thirsty land. And this led them to pray uh, for two to three nights per week from 10 p.m. to two, or to 3 a.m. And after several weeks of praying like this, on this cold, wet night that I mentioned, Peggy had a vision. 
And this vision was of her church being crowded with young people. And then there was this unknown pastor, who is the guy in the middle of the picture there, he ended up coming to the island, but there's this unknown uh, pastor preaching from the pulpit as these young people crowded in the church. And this may not seem like a big deal to us to get a vision like this, but for these people who, who like this sort of thing didn't happen for them, they were a very you know, traditional church, not very open to like the gifts of the spirit, things like that. Like this was dynamite for them to get a vision like this. And they didn't really know what to do. So what they did is they called for their pastor, not the guy in the picture, a different pastor. They called for him and they told him about the vision. They said, God wants to do this. There's gonna be a bunch of young people in our church. And the pastor's like, well, what do you want me to do about it? That's great that you had some vision praying in the middle of the night, but what do you want me to do or do about it? And the old ladies were like, "Hey, you need to pray. You need to get the pat or the elders to pray." So, uh, so the ladies they challenged uh, the pastor to gather his elders and pray at the same time that they were praying. So the ladies were going to pray in their cottage, and then the pastor and his elders would pray from from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. as well in a barn across the village. And they knew at this point, they knew that a move of God was their only hope. Like they were desperate for God to move. There are, are times in history where uh, the church gets to a point of desperation like the Hebridean churches were experiencing. Uh, the church gets to a point where it's so lifeless and society is so far gone that, or that no amount of church strategy or outreach or human effort can reverse the decline. And the only hope is for God to move, for him to send revival, as Pastor Eric was talking about, send revival to the church. Again, if you don't know what revival is, it comes from the word revive, which means to live again, okay, or to come to life. So it refers to, or to bringing the church back to life after a season of dormancy. And many people think that the Western church is in one of those moments of desperation right now. We are in an extraordinary season of decline. In 2020, the Barner Group, which is a Christian research institution, the premier one, uh, or they, or they published a study called The State of the Church. And, and one of the things they researched was the number of practicing Christians. Okay, so practicing Christians are three things. One, they call themselves a Christian. Two, they prioritize their faith. And three, they prioritize uh, church attendance. And the results were astounding. In 2000, when they started measuring this, they found that 45% of Americans were practicing Christians. And in 2020, that fell to 25%. That is extraordinary. That is 20 years. And that is the level of decline we're facing. And as the church has declined, as the church has lost its influence, society has also declined. There's such brokenness in the West right now. And the in the Western society. We're seeing a rise in addictions and psychological confusion. We're seeing a rise in sexual immorality, uh, the breakdown of the family, and we're dealing with staggering mental health crises all at the same time, like several mental health crises at the same time. We got quite a mess on our hands. And the president of Barna, David Kinnaman, he published a book called Faith for Exiles, which essentially is about how to turn the tide and how to reach the next generation. It's all about how to reach young people and one of the things he found is that only 10% of 20-somethings who grew up in the church are what he would refer to as resilient disciples. Okay, so what is a resilient disciple? It sounds really cool. Maybe some of you are resilient disciples. I don't know. I hope so. It's these four things. So one, you attend church regularly or at least monthly. So only monthly, which I think is an incredibly low bar, but whatever. You attend church monthly, way to go. You can come to church once a month. Uh, you engage in, in more than worship services. You trust in the authority of the Bible. You are committed to Jesus personally and affirm that he was crucified and raised from the dead. And you express a desire to transform society as an outcome of your faith. So again, I'm not downplaying his definition here, but this is a low bar. This is not crazy by any means. And only 10%, 10% of 20-somethings who grew up in the church are resilient disciples. I think we're in a precarious moment in the Western church. And this should not be a cause of panic, but a cause of soberness before God. And we can't afford to mess around or to squander our calling. God, for whatever reason, God has decided I'm gonna place you in this moment. He's placing you in this moment, you in this moment. He's placing you in this moment. He puts you here at this time, in this place. And the question is, what are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna be the type of person who God can use to change society and reverse decline? Or are you gonna live a self-centered life? It's all about you. And to chart a, 
a course forward. I think we need to look to the past. Church history is marked by times of decline and revival. And I want to start by briefly talking about the things that, or the things that lead uh, to decline. Uh, so we can see how we got into this mess in the first place. There are some common markers of a season of decline. And we see some of these in the book of Hosea. It's a very cheery book. Uh, as the people of God went through a tremendous season of decline, they're about to be destroyed and exiled for heaven's sake, right? Like this is not good. And there are some parallels with their story to our story. And, and we see the first mark of decline in chapter four. This is when Hosea starts to rebuke Israel. Before that, he's telling a story, which is amazing. We don't have time to, uh, to get into. But in chapter four, he starts rebuking them. He says this in verse one. He says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Okay, so Hosea, he's saying there's no faithfulness, there's no love in Israel. You're supposed to be God's people. You're not faithful, you're not loving. There's no knowledge of God in the land. And, and when he says knowledge of God, he's not talking about like, like just knowing some theological truths, like, oh, I, I know the Bible, I can win in Bible quiz competitions, whatever. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about an intellectual knowing. Instead, he's using the word, uh, or yada from the Hebrew, which it refers more to a relational knowing, okay? So there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone, okay? So Hosea says that the Israelites, like they know about God, they've heard stories about him, but they don't actually know God. And this is the first mark of decline. We don't actually know God or desire to know him, right? We, don't, we just know about him. We're seeing this happen in large swaths of the of the Western church on a corporate level, it's become very normal to have church without actually seeking God in his heart. Like we've become more concerned about, and I'm talking, I'm not like pointing fingers at other churches. I'm saying we, right, the, the American church, we have become more concerned about pleasing people and building bigger churches than we are about pleasing God and seeking his face. You hear me? We become more, like, like the prayer meeting is the least popular thing that happens at St. Church. By far, it's not even close. Nobody comes. We're trying to see if we can find a better time for people, right? Some of you have work, I get it. Right? But nobody goes to prayer meetings. And that's not just our church, right? Like if it's about just seeking God and being with him, I'm out. I'm out. It's too boring, right? So as a church, as the American church, we become more concerned about pleasing people, building bigger churches than we are pleasing God and seeking his face. The prayer meeting has been downplayed. As individuals, we often settle for knowing some theological truths about God. Like we wanna know factoids about him without actually uh, knowing him personally. Right? With, and, and we go through the motions spiritually. And we become content with not actually knowing God ourselves. Right? And we live vicariously through other people. Like, oh, you know, we hear other people's stories, but, but we don't have our own stories of God coming through for us. And and God you know, coming down and speaking to us. We don't have our own stories. And this is a clear cause and sign of decline. Okay, the second mark of decline is in 1013. It says, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Like, pastor, where are you going with this one? This is harsh. He says, you've plowed iniquity. Okay, this refers to sin or wickedness. Okay, so to put it bluntly, uh, the Israelites were hypocrites. Right, they were hypocrites. They blended in with the nations around them and worshiped their nations or the other nations' gods while still trying to worship their God. And they wanted to have their God and the other gods. And Hosea rebukes Israel over and over and over again for, or for worshiping at foreign altars. Like they didn't give God all of themselves. And this shows us the second mark of decline. We worship other gods. And I'm not talking about statues. Right? I'm not talking like, 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 I don't worship any other God. I don't bow to statues like is, or like the Israelites said. No, we worship other gods in the name of, of sex, money, power, recognition, fame. Gen Z, I'm just telling you guys, it's not all it's cracked up to be, being famous on social media. And that's a God, right? When you're like spending hours thinking about what your post looks like and how many likes you're gonna get, that's not good. That's not good. You're bowing to a little idol called Instagram and fame. Okay, so I'm not talking about actual like other deities uh, that other religions uh, worship. I'm talking about these things that we put before God. We've told a generation, not explicitly, we wouldn't say this, but implicitly that they can have Jesus 
and have the gods of this world. You can have it all. Instead of you can have it all, God, we're telling the people, you can have it all. You can have it all. Christianity doesn't demand you uh, or to leave anything. You can have it all, people, because we want you to stay and keep coming to our church. You can have it all. And, and while we've done this, we've neglected our call to be holy. And we, like, holy has become a dirty word in the church. Oh, oh, oh we don't want to be legalistic. You know, so we don't want to call people to obedience. No, Jesus was incredibly concerned about obedience and holiness. Incredibly concerned. He paid the price on the cross for us so we could be free before God. Be free to grow up into holiness and not be afraid of condemnation. Right? Because, you know, condemnation is not a good motivator to grow holy. Love is a better motivator. So Jesus, he paid the price on the cross so we can have what we need to grow up into holiness. Holiness is still the goal. Right? That's the whole point of what I'm trying to do here is cultivate an environment where we can grow holier and become more like Jesus because actually to be holy is to be happy. To be holy is actually the best way to live. It is the best way to live. I, or my heart is provoked by, by so many people being caught up in all the things of the world and it destroying them from the inside out. And I want to see people be holy because I want to see people be happy. Be happy in God be, or, and live the life that they're called to live. I'm getting into the later part of the sermon so I need to slow down. But the point is, we've settled for forgiveness without transformation. Right? We've settled for giving out, get out of hell free cards without actually showing people how to bring heaven here now through the way they live their lives. All right, second half of verse 13. It says this, 13b, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Okay, so Hosea repeatedly accuses Israel for trusting in their political alliances over God. Right, they want to rely on their own strength and power. They want to figure out how to make it work themselves. Like, what can we turn to in this world to save us? And this shows us the third mark of decline. The third mark is we trust in ourselves. And this might be the defining mark of decline in the American church right now. As church leaders, again, looking at myself, we, have, or we often turn to man-made strategies and ideas on how to reverse decline. We spin our wheels, constantly try to figure out how to make something happen. And we think that if we can just come up with one new church program or have a big event or give away free stuff, we can get people into the kingdom of God. Hear me, I'm not against doing any of those things. We give away free stuff. We're gonna give you a t-shirt if you're new. We just really want you to keep coming. So there's a t-shirt. That's gonna be the game changer for you. I'm just playing with you. I'm joking. We give you the t-shirt because we just wanna bless you. But the point is, I'm not against any of those things. It's not wrong to do those things. We do those things. We do outreaches. We have events. We give away stuff at times. But it is wrong to trust in ourselves. It's wrong to think that those things can move the needle. Like those are the things that are going to change society is our own efforts, our own abilities, you know, good preaching, you know, good worship band. That's what's going to change society. It's wrong to trust in ourselves. We need to build an altar like Elijah did. If you're familiar with the story, Elijah builds an altar. He pours water on it to show the other foreign or show foreign people who are worshiping foreign gods. He, he's trying to show them that, that his God is the true God, right? So he, he builds an altar, he pours water on it, and he asks God, he says, send fire from heaven. Show them uh, that you're the one true God, right? We need to do that. We need to build an altar and ask for fire and say, that's what we're trusting in, right? We're not trying to make it happen. Instead, we're just creating space for God uh, to send his Holy Spirit and to do what he does. You know, A.W. Tozer said this. I read this in Bible college and it convicted me like crazy. This is like 10 years ago. It says this. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, or church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. We have to resist the urge to create a church that can do what it does without the Holy Spirit. We must resist the urge to trust in ourselves. And the same applies to your life personally. Do not trust in yourself. Sure, work hard. I'm all for hard work. If you read the book of Proverbs, you should work hard. That's clear, right? I wanna be the hardest working person in the room. That's just my own desire and passion to be a hard worker. But the key is not putting your confidence in yourself or in your hard work. Where's your confidence at? Is it in you or is it in God? Is it in what you can make happen or is it in God? Okay, there are surely more markers of decline, but we'll just stick with those three for today. I think that's enough to get us going. But, okay, so with all this in mind, how do we reverse decline? Okay, again, the answer's not a new church program. It's not me wearing, like, cooler clothes. I, 
I could rant about different things. I'm going to slow, calm down. So it's not about making church cooler. The pastor being cool is not going to move the needle. <laughs> okay? Like, and I, I, I look like a dork. If I, anyways, sorry. I'm just saying, okay, I got to stop. Okay, it's also not about, I could just rant about that for hours. Don't try so hard, my friends. All right, anyways, it's not political power. Some of y'all putting your hope in politics. I'm not against voting you know, well, and I'm not against being active in government. I think that's great. We've been given the right to vote, but that's not going to move the needle. Getting the right person in the Oval Office is not going to move the needle. Our hope is not in any presidential candidate. You hear me this morning? Our hope is not there. Again, vote well, like vote biblically. I'm all for all of that. But your hope can't be in political power. It can't be in embracing liberal theology. Actually, what happens is when church, and when I say liberal theology, I'm not talking about like, like politics. I'm talking about theology. Okay, so when churches downplay the Bible and they go with a more liberal approach, they actually start shrinking. Because people say, you're not really teaching the Bible, right? That's not actually real. You don't even believe what you say you believe. So people stop going. People want something real, right? It's not anything we can do on our strength. That's not how we reverse decline. None of that's going to work. Nothing we can do on our own strength is going to make this happen. Instead, we don't need a move of man. Instead, we need a move of God. We need a move of God. And just as those ladies in the Hebridean revival recognized that they needed a move of God, that is precisely what we need. That's precisely what we need. They realized we need to pray. That's what we need to do. We need to ask God to send fire, send rain. So David Kinnaman, again, he has said that the church in America, he's that president of Barna, he has said that the church in America has has reached a point of irreversible decline. Like statistically speaking, like it's irreversible at this point unless God moves supernaturally. But God, right? That's the only way this thing uh, gets reversed. We need God to show up and do something in our generation. And I think we actually have great reason to hope that he will do this in our generation. See, revival typically comes after seasons of decline like the one we're in. Uh, James Burns, he talks about this in his classic book on revivals. He, he found that the moments where things seem the bleakest and the church is declining are actually the moments where God moves most powerfully. These are the points where God shows up. So for instance, the first great awakening of the 18th century, so uh, the 1700s, you know, think Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley, George Whitfield, some of these guys. I'll talk about it more later in the series, but... but uh, during this time, before the Great Awakening, uh, or this was the a season of the Enlightenment, and philosophers were saying that science and reason were, or would completely replace the need for God. And some genuinely believed that the church would become extinct. Like, they actually believed that. And many church historians, just, actually just listening to someone this morning, many church historians say that that time of decline was worse than the moment we're in. Like, by far. Right? Like that was way worse. So if you think we're like in the worst moment in history, it's probably not the worst moment in history. And at a time when people were worried that the church was going to close its door, an awakening that touched all of society broke out. It wasn't just about revival in the church. It was awakening in society. Like the slave trade got abolished in the UK as a result of this awakening. Right? Like it changed society. In Burns, he uses the analogy of a tide to explain this, okay? So when the church is in a season of decline, it's like the tide has gone out to sea and we're left with a bunch of exposed sand that's, that's washed up and the church seems dead. However, just as the tide is furthest out, that's when it's bound to rush back in more powerful than before. And I believe that there's a tide coming in this century. I hope it's in my lifetime, but I believe it'll be in this century. We can't force this tide to rush in, but there are things we can do to position our hearts for a move of God. There are things we can do to make room for him to move. Uh, we can't make the wind of the spirit blow. We use that imagery. Siri, shh, be quiet. So anyways, okay. All right, Satan, not today. Anyways, so we can't make the wind of the spirit blow. Right? We use this imagery of wind. For the spirit, we can't make it blow, but we can hoist up our sails and try to catch the wind, right? So how do we prepare our hearts for a move of God? Hosea shows us the way, verse 12. It says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea calls Israel to do a few things to reverse their 
imminent destruction. I wanna take them each in turn briefly here. The first one is sow for yourselves righteousness. Okay, Hosea, he's using farming imagery, right? We're, like we get farming. We get farming here in Iowa. Just as a farmer has to plant seeds to get a harvest, if we want revival in the church and awakening in society, it starts with getting our hearts right with God. It starts with holiness. I already talked about it a bit. A desire for holiness is the mark of a heart that is prepared for a move of God. That's the first mark of a, per, of a prepared heart is holiness. All holiness begins with turning from our ways, realizing they don't work and repenting, right? So saying no to that, saying I wanna turn the other direction. It starts with saying, Jesus, your way is better than my way. You're smarter than me. It starts with refusing to bow at the idols of our culture, but bowing to Jesus alone. As we turn from our ways, here's what happens. As we turn from our ways, we receive the loving kindness of Jesus. He is so much kinder than you could ever imagine. He's not waiting to smack you while you're down. He's waiting to pick you up, right? He is kind. His kindness leads to repentance. His love changes everything. And this, as we receive the, or the love of God, it actually causes us to, or to want to continue to turn from our sin. So we're gonna slip up and fall again, right? It's not like we're perfect. And when we do fall, we, we get back up and we uh, once again receive the grace and love of Jesus. It doesn't run out. His mercies are new every morning. And as we continue to receive his love, as we continue to resist a spirit of condemnation and we realize that, or that we're forgiven in Jesus, this propels us forward into holiness. At the same time, as we don't give into a spirit of condemnation, we also uh, don't give into a spirit of indifference right, to our sin. We recognize the seriousness of our sin, but at the same time, the enormity of God's love. If you don't understand how bad your sin sin is, you won't know how great his love is. You have to know how bad it is, even the smallest things, even getting mad at someone in traffic and thinking bad thoughts about them. It is grievous to a holy God. And we have to realize the enormity of our sin and allow that to push us to repentance. So I wrote this sermon on Friday. Well, I finished it on Friday. I just got done with the sermon. I closed my computer and I called Emily and there's something, there's something I asked her to do that she didn't do, not her fault. She's busy. Anyways, and I was mad. I was like, come on, I asked you to do this. I hang up the phone and all of a sudden Holy Spirit's like, hey, do you remember the sermon you just wrote? <laughs> I'm like, dang it. So anyways, I repented. Yay. Anyways, go me. But uh, the point is, even being short with your spouse is a grievous sin to God, right? It's not little. Jesus doesn't come to say, oh, sin's not a big deal. He says, it's a huge deal. And that's why I had to die on the cross. But here's the good news. I paid the price so you don't have to, Right? So as we don't give into a spirit of condemnation, we also don't give into a spirit of indifference to our sin. We become consumed with the passion to be holy as a response to Jesus's love, right? We do what God tells us to do, which gets back to what I was talking about during the tithe and offering. We do what he tells us to do, right? We allow the soil of our heart to be soft. And when he tells us to do something, we don't waste time doing it, right? We just do it because we know he's good and he's better than we are. He's smarter just do what he tells you. I'm, I, I've never done something. I want to run around. I've never done something or, or done something that God told me to do and then regretted it. Never once in my life have I done what God told me to do and regretted it. And he's told me to do some really wacky things, some hard things, you know, repent of sins that I didn't want to share with people. He asked me to help plant a church in 2020. Good idea, God right? I've never regretted doing what God tells me to do. And you won't regret it, I promise you. And if you aren't convinced, just try it. Try it out. Test God in it. See what happens. His way is better than our ways. All right. If we want to get our sails up and catch the wind of the Spirit, it starts with holiness. It starts with, this, or starts with desiring to be like Jesus and taking steps towards that. Hosea then elaborates on the farming imagery by calling them to break up the fallow ground. And that's the specific phrase that's been on my heart. Break up your fallow ground. Another way to say this is to break up your unplowed ground. The image here is of a hard, rocky ground that you wanna farm. And if you're gonna farm it, you have to break it up first. You have to ready the ground. 
And farmers today do this through a tractor. Back then, they would pull a plow with an animal. Before we can ever hope to see God move in our hearts, in the church, and in society, we have to humble ourselves and allow God to break us in the best way possible. We have to allow him to soften our hearts. So the second mark of a prepared heart is tenderness. Instead of trusting in ourselves like the Israelites did, instead of depending on our own abilities, we become radically dependent on God. We have to recognize that we can't do it on our own and we need God to show up. We must let God's love plow up our hard hearts and soften them. And the phrase, break up your fallow ground, it's been my prayer for our church for the entire year of 2023. I've had this consistent image in my head of the Lord like reaching into our chest and just like melting our hearts. I just have this image in my mind. I have this image of the hardness of our hearts just wearing off and becoming so tender before him. I've had, I've had you know, visions and images in my mind of us having worship services where people are weeping under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but also under the ferocious love of God, just weeping before him. If you haven't had a good weep session in your life, God wants that for you. He wants an ugly cry for you. I've had a lot of ugly cries. It's some of the best moments, right? Just weeping before the Lord. I have the sense that the Lord's gonna really highlight the enormity of our sin, but at the same time, uh, the enormity of his love. And it's gonna mess us up and we'll never be the same. That's what I'm praying for. I'm praying Ephesians 4 over our church. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I'm praying we can put away the things that harden our hearts like bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and instead we can or be so in awe of God's love that we can't help but be kind. Kindness is underrated, y'all. Be kind, be tenderhearted, forgive. There's nothing that someone has done against you that is worse than what you've done against God. You have no right to hold their sin against them. You have no right. Some of you think you do. You're like, oh, it's really bad what they did. You have no right, and it is killing you. Forgive. If you need motivation, look at what Jesus forgave you of. You know your heart. You know the things you think about. Think about the fact that Jesus forgave you in the midst of that. And allow that to just bubble or, or to stir up compassion and forgiveness in your heart towards others. I'm praying for a tender church, the kind of church that is, that is ready to catch the wind because we are tender. Every time God moves in a powerful way, it starts with breaking up fallow ground. And someone I look up to a lot is a guy named Dr. James Bradford. Okay, so about 45 years ago, he was a student at the University of Minnesota and he was studying to be a rocket scientist. Genius, right? And, and during his junior year of his undergraduate, so some of you are juniors in college right now, so imagine this, during his junior year, of his undergraduate, he became the director of Chi Alpha. Some of you are like, I'm ready. You're way too confident. <laughs> Some of you are like, no way. Okay, so, so here's the thing. When he started, he had 12 students and he had vision, he had a passion, a fire from God and he grew that group all the way down to three. <laughs> and after spinning his wheels for, for multiple years trying to lead Chi Alpha well, he realized, I'm not very good at this. So what did he do? He had an office that had a, a desk but no chair. Can't afford a chair when you're a Catholic missionary. <laughs> you just get a desk, okay? So, so what he would do is he started praying and he would just lay on the ground and groan before God and weep before God and pray for his campus. He did that for over a year. And then one fall, they, they did all the outreach stuff, all the things like I talk about spinning our wheels, all the stuff, trying to get students to come and it didn't move the needle at all and the group was still at 12. Well, actually they grew back up to 12 people. So revival came three to 12, <laughs> praise God back up to 12, and then one night in October, which we're coming up on October, so hey, I, I don't know, there's something about October, but, but you know, one night in October, you know, they had 12 students the week before. He's praying, he's fasting, seeking God, multiple, or, multiple, or multiple people are doing that. He shows up to Kyle, and 65 people are there. And he asked him, he's like, hey, hey, why'd you come? Is there something that drew you here? He's asking everyone, and they all came for different reasons. The Holy Spirit just drew them all there that night. That's the kind of stuff that happens when you pray. That's the kind of stuff that happens when you allow God to break up the fallow ground of your heart. He starts doing things that you can't do on your own strength. 
I want this church, I've said this since the beginning, I want this church to be an only God church. Like things happen here that's like only God. There's nothing, it, it doesn't make sense. Only God could do that. And that's what Dr. Bradford experienced because he humbled himself before the Lord and, and allowed the Lord to break him. And this leads me to the final mark of a prepared heart that, was, or that Hosea gives us. He says, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. So the, or the last thing is it's time to seek the Lord. After you repent of your sin and pursue holiness, after you humble yourself before God and let him tenderize your heart, it's time to seek him. It's time to get hungry for him. It's time to pray. So that's the third mark is hunger, hunger. God often allows the church to get to a desperate place so that they will finally actually be hungry for him. He wants the church to be fed up with just knowing about him and do what it takes to actually know him. And for Dr. Bradford, he had to get to a place of desperation. He had to be fed up with the status quo. If you trace out revival history, something you'll see is that revivals are always preceded by extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer. A church that is about to be revived is a church that has prioritized the prayer room. It's a church that that recognizes that for things to change, God has to move. And for God to move, people need to pray. It's, and then he says this, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea recognized that Israel could not force things to change. Even by their repentance and their tenderness, breaking up the ground, they could not force things to change. They were dependent on rain from heaven. They needed rain, just as a farmer can't force rain but can only do his part. Israel could do their part by sowing seeds of righteousness, by breaking up the fallow ground of their heart, and then by seeking God and asking him to send rain. And last week before church, I was praying about service, and I felt like God was saying, rain, rain, rain. I hadn't been thinking about that imagery at all. I just felt like God was putting it on my heart. And then I came and I shared that with our dream team before service. And then Keziah, who, who's a pastor with Chi Alpha on our Chi Alpha team, she came up to me after I shared that. She said, it's crazy. On the way to church today, I just kept hearing the song, let it rain, let it rain. <clears throat> Open the floodgates of heaven. That was horrible. It was way out of tune. <laughs> Anyways, she was like, I kept hearing that song and I hate that song. I heard it all the time as a kid. I don't like it, but it was in my head and I couldn't get it out of my head. I think the Lord's about to send rain. He's about to send rain. We can't force the next move of God to happen, but we can ask him to do it. Desperate times call for desperate measures. The prayer meeting has to become the most important thing at Scent Church. I want the prayer room to be a more highly attended than Sunday mornings, which is hard because I work very hard for Sunday mornings. Hard for me to say that. But it has to become the most important thing. We have to be a praying church. We gotta ask for rain. We gotta get hungry. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Every great move of God starts with people who are hungry and thirsty. All right, so let's circle back to what happened in 1949 in the village of Barvis. So the Smith sisters, they're praying from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. They got the elders to pray, which is just so like true, right? There's like people come up to me, to, like, like it's typically ladies, like you need to get praying. I'm like, I do need to get praying. Thank you for challenging me. All right, pastors, we can get in this like, like state where we're trying to do it on our own. All right, so anyways, they're praying, uh, the ladies are praying. And then after many weeks of praying late into the night, one young deacon stood up and he read Psalm 24. Okay, he reads verses three through five. It says this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Okay, so he reads this and he stops in his tracks. He closes his Bible. He looks at the other elders and he says this. He says, it seems to me to be so much humbug to be praying as we are praying to be waiting as we are waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. He then prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And immediately at 3 a.m., he fell to the floor and the revival of the Hebrides began. The presence of God gripped every person present. There are authenticated reports that the Holy Spirit woke people up out of bed that night all across the village 
they got up, like they didn't know what to do because they're under conviction of the Holy Spirit. So they're like, well, I'm just gonna get dressed and go to church because I feel convicted. That's where I'll go, church. They all show up at church at the same time. And when they get there, there's people praying. And a revival broke out from here. And this continued for three years. There was one night where, where they're having a meeting because they had meetings like every night. And, on, and out of all the people who got saved that night, 75% of them got saved on their way to the meeting on the streets because the presence of God was so powerful in the streets that they fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they got saved before they even got inside the walls. Uh, the overwhelming love of God and the conviction of sin was said to be so strong at their meetings that the preacher would have to stop preaching because people were weeping so loudly that he, they couldn't hear him. So he just had to stop and wait. People didn't want to leave church. There were days where the people didn't even go to work because they'd sit up the night before praying. Like all work shuts down on the island. There are several reports that during one prayer gathering in a home, uh, the house itself shook like Acts chapter four. Okay, so a jug on the sideboard fell onto the floor and broke and the dishes on the dresser rattled and Duncan Campbell, the pastor who ended up leaving or he ended up leading the revival, he said that, or that wave after wave of divine power swept through that room. And these people, again, they're part of a very conservative, rigid, traditional church. They weren't trying to make it happen. Right? We're, we're Pentecostals, we're charismatic here at Centre. So sometimes we can try to make things happen. We're like feeling, woo, yeah, we're ready. But it's like, right, but for us to do that, it's like, okay, like you guys wanted that to happen, right? These are conservative people. And they were just overwhelmed by the presence of God. As God moved, visions were commonplace, right? Some people said they saw angels. Others said they would see demons fleeing the church. People would often fall to the floor because they were overwhelmed by the presence of God. And this ain't the type of falling where the pastor's like trying to push them down, like, go, go down. I need to feel authenticated. Go to the ground. I'm not saying that's wrong. I've been slain in the spirit before. It's great. But I'm just saying, if the pastor's pushing on your head, say, uh-uh, I ain't going down. I have done that before. I've been like, I'm not going down if you're pushing me. The Holy Spirit's pushing me down. I'm just saying. Okay, so this isn't that type of thing where they're all like wanting it to happen. It's like, boom, to the floor because they're overwhelmed by the presence of God. They are overwhelmed with conviction of sin. And this revival didn't just stay on the island, but it spread to other islands. And while we don't have exact numbers because the leaders were afraid of counting because they didn't want to get prideful, oh man, you shoot me in the heart, guys. Anyways, Okay, some estimate, though, that in the first five weeks, 20,000 people gave their lives to Christ. And this is on a village of like a couple thousand people, okay? So people are coming in, getting saved, 20,000 people. This revival was legit. God moved. And some say it was the last great revival we've experienced in the West, and we're due for another one. The main idea is the time is now to prepare our hearts for the next move of God. I hesitate to say this because I don't ever want to pretend to know what God's going to do in our community because I don't. He always surprises me. It's never exactly what I think, right? But I've had this sense for 12 years now that Jesus wants to do something kind of like what happened in the Hebrides here in Cedar Falls and in the Cedar Valley. Again, it's not about hype. It's not about hype. I don't want hype. It's not about trying to make something happen. It's not about trying to get people to be emotional. I just believe that the Lord wants to sovereignly move in our midst. He wants to bring us under conviction of sin, overwhelm us with his love in the midst of that, and baptize us in the Holy Spirit. He wants to revive the church here. He wants us to be white hot with passion for him. He wants to do something that first is gonna touch us, right? First is gonna deal with us. There's gonna be things that, that you've been denying, or not dealing with, that God's gonna bring to the light and you're gonna get freedom, it's gonna be beautiful. But it's not just gonna be us, it's also gonna then spread to our cities and then to the world. I believe he wants to use us to reach our friends. He wants to awaken our cities and bring thousands to him. Can I be bold enough to say that? I just believe that's God's heart. He wants to bring thousands to himself in this moment. And then out of this, he wants to send people out from the Cedar Valley to reach the nations. And that's the heart behind sent church, right? Like just last night, I had a little vision. I don't know if it's from the Lord, it's in my dream. Might've just been my own idea, but a dream of us starting a church in a small town around here. Just a little dream last night. I don't know if it's from God or if it's just me. But that's the vision, revival in the church, awakening in society. But it starts with each of our hearts getting right with God. 
It starts with us being holy and tender and hungry. So let me end by putting it on you. Are you ready for the next move of God? Are you living a holy life? I'm not asking you if you're perfect. None of us are perfect, but is there any unrepentant sin in your life? Are there any strongholds in your life that you've rationalized the way you decided to live with that intruder and say, okay, he can stay? Are there strongholds in your life that you need to get free of? Are there any addictions you need to be set free of? Repent today, turn from it, tell a friend, bring it to the altar, get right with God and demolish the altars that you've built to foreign gods and to false gods. As you repent, do what God tells you to do. Don't let what happens at the altar stay at the altar. It should lead to change. Do whatever he tells you to do. Do the next thing he tells you to do. Obey today. Don't delay. Do it. Pursue holiness. As you consider your holiness, let me ask you as well, is your heart soft enough for God to do something? Is your heart soft before God? If not, ask him. Say, Lord, my heart is hard. I need you to do something. I get this image right now in my mind of like an ice, a big block of ice and a flamethrower coming on it. Just ask him, say, Lord, not flamethrower, a torch, whatever. Say, Lord, torch my heart. Melt the ice around my heart. Say, Lord, bring me to the end of myself. I wanna be tender before you. I want that hunger. I don't have it, but I want it. Help me. Stop hardening your heart. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your abilities or your money or your own power to make things happen. God wants you to reject pride. Reject pride. Humble yourself before him today. And finally, are you hungry for God? Or have you settled for just knowing about God without actually knowing God? Have you settled for knowing a few theological truths without actually knowing him intimately and hearing his voice for yourself? Don't settle. Ask God to make you hungry. Ask him to send rain. Seek his face. I realize that when I preach a sermon like this, I'm utterly dependent on God to do something in your heart. There's no like 10 steps here, right? I'm utterly dependent on it. I, on him, I can't make you holy or want to be tender or hungry for God. I can't make you want to move of God with, okay. So with that in mind though, if you're struggling to, to want these things, maybe you're like, I don't even want this stuff. If you're struggling, I want to end by sharing how your heart can start to want more of God. And it's actually found in the very next chapter of Hosea. After Hosea tells Israel that God is going to judge them, he says that the judgment will not be the end. He says, ultimately, God will restore you. Even though you've been rebellious, even though you've been sinful and bent on your own way, God will have compassion. He will show mercy. He will restore. Hosea 11, let's see it. How can I give you up? This is God talking. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like, like Zebulon? My heart recoils within me. That is God's heart. It recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God. I am not a man. I remember when I realized that he's not a man. I was like, wow, he can love me in the midst of my stuff. When I realized that, it just messed me up. When I had done everything I said I would never do, and he loved me in the midst of that, that's what changed me. Oh, I'm not like a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Even though Israel deserved to be judged, they were so bad guys, it was bad. They deserved to be banished from God's presence forever. Even though that was true, God couldn't hand them over. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't treat them like the other nations. And why is that? Again, his heart recoils within him. That's what his heart does for you when you don't obey him. It recoils within him. His compassion grows warm and tender for you. In those times where he tells you to do something and you know he told you to do it and for whatever reason you don't do it, what does he do? His heart recoils within him. His, he grow, or his compassion grows warm and tender. He's not like us. 
He's not like us who can't forgive those who have hurt us, who we hold grudges. Instead, he continues to hold out his hand with love and compassion. This is what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. Even though we deserve wrath and we deserve hell, he came to do everything necessary for us to have salvation. He paid the price for our sins on the cross. He rose from the grave. Now, if we trust in him, we can be forgiven. His life can be put on our life. His righteousness can be attributed to our account. His his resurrection can be our future resurrection on the last day. We can have eternal life. The love of God is what compels us to want him. The love of God is what drove Peggy and Christine to pray all night. Like, I want the next generation to have the same love we have. I want them to know God like we know them. They knew him. Like, we want the next gen to know God like we do. His kindness leads us to repentance. His steadfast love is better than life. If we're gonna have a move of God in our day, we need to encounter the love of God afresh. Let's stand to our feet. Let's seek his face as we close here. Let's ask him to baptize us in love. Just as as Jen went under the water, my prayer is that he would like dunk us in love, that he would fill us with his spirit. Let's turn from our sin. Let's ask him for more. So, So here's what we're gonna do. If we're gonna get everything we want or what God wants out of this series, we need to make a statement this morning that we're serious about what we're talking about. I, there's like fear and trepidation coming up to the sermon for me because it's very kind of like bold and a little bit, I don't know, the, like presumptuous, the series, a little presumptuous, like the next move of God. And there's like fear and trepidation. I'm like, Lord, I can't make this happen through a good teaching. So if we're going to step into what God wants through this, we need to get serious. So I wanna challenge you, get to the altar this morning. The prayer teams are gonna be available up here as well. If you wanna give your life to Christ, get to the altar, turn from your sins. All you gotta do is say, Jesus, I repent of my sins, I trust in you. If you wanna start pursuing holiness to a greater degree, if you wanna reject false gods, get to the altar. If you have some pride in your heart or your heart is hard, get to the altar, ask him to, to tenderize your heart. If you wanna be hungry, get to the altar. Say, God, I don't feel very hungry, but I wanna be hungry, help me. All right, I'm gonna pray and then we'll open the altars up. So Lord, right now, pray for every heart in this room that your spirit would be poured out, that every person would be filled with your spirit. God, if there's people in here who don't know you, that they would put their trust in you. God, we pray that your love would just kind of be poured out in this room and that you would have your way. So God, we turn from our wicked ways and we trust in you. God, we ask you make us holy and tender and hungry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. The altars are open. Don't miss this opportunity. Let's seek the Lord and worship and prayer.